0: Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. A new season of The Bachelor began this week, which means Bachelor Party with Juliet Littman is back in full swing. She's back twice a week with Monday's show covering each new episode, and Thursday's show covering Vanderpump Rules with several appearances from David Jacoby. This week, The Bachelor himself, Peter Weber, joins Juliet to talk about the season ahead. You can subscribe to Bachelor Party wherever you get your podcasts and join the Bachelor Party Facebook group for insights, gossip, breaking news, and more.
1: I'm Sean Fennessy.
0: I'm Amanda Dobbin. And this is
1: The Big Picture, a conversation show about the Academy Awards. Later in the show, I'll have an interview with Destin Daniel Cretton, the writer-director of Short Term 12, Cretton has a new film called Just Mercy based on the book of the same name by the lawyer and civil rights activist Bryan Stevenson. I hope you'll stick around for that. But first, Amanda, we're finally here. And let me tell you, I'm getting really, really excited about the Academy Award nominations. How are you feeling?
0: Well, we will be doing our predictions later in this show. And I feel stressed (laughs) and vulnerable and unsure. I lack the courage of my convictions. I did not enjoy this process. And now I have to share all of my guesses with the world at large.
1: It's not about feeling wrong. It's about feeling good. That's the thing to keep in mind here. Are we excited to talk about these things? Are we hopeful? Are we these unborn embryos of hope looking forward to the Academy Awards? Absolutely.
0: Why would you bring hope into this? <laughs> <laughs> because that's that's
1: the part of the natural life cycle of the Oscar season. And we just exited, I think, one of the uglier parts of the season, which is the Golden Globes. And we are entering a, a truly fertile time. We will be giving birth to something beautiful soon.
0: Okay. This just got really vivid.
1: <laughs> I'm really, really excited. I don't know what it is. I, I was pouring over all of the, the categories. And, and there's a lot for us to talk about before we get to our predictions. And we'll predict not every category, but most of the major categories here on this podcast. But a lot has happened in the interim. So let's talk about where the Oscars stand right now. First of all, they, they came really quickly. This was a very shortened season, a truncated season. Monday morning at 5.18 a.m. Pacific, we'll be getting those nominations. And the show starts on February 9th, which is, I think, the shortest season in history, if I'm not mistaken. Which is really odd, considering you'd think we'd be elongating these things over time to get more content out of them. But the Academy decided earlier runtime, one week after the Super Bowl. And we got some information this week. First of all, no host. Yes. Officially confirmed by the Academy. How are you feeling about no host?
0: I feel great about this.
1: There was no host last year.
0: Yes. It went fine.
1: I thought the show was perfectly clean and the ratings were up and we got a good telecast. Mm -hmm. So they're running it back. Now, I don't think that the show needs a host. I do think that this means that the show's ratings will go down.
0: You think it's a cause and effect from the no hosts, rather than the fact that it's 2020 and no one watches live television anymore?
1: I think that that is certainly a factor and maybe a much bigger factor than the host. But I need to point out that last year, think of all the panic and anxiety and emergency podcasts we had to do because Kevin Hart was the host, but then he wouldn't apologize. And then he wasn't the host anymore. And there was a popular Oscar. And then there was not a popular Oscar. And there was all of this energy around the Academy Awards. Right now, I think there's actually a lot of energy around movies, which is good. We're in a great time for movies. And I think 1917's win at the Globes and it's opening wide in theaters is another time where another great film has hit theaters and people are fired up about going to the movies. That's all great. It's not great for an award show though, because there's no tension around what's going on other than who's going to win.
0: Well, counterpoint, there is a lot of attention, tension around who's going to win, and we're, we'll talk more about that. But I do think it'll be an interesting race. You pointed out there are a lot of there's excitement about movies and particularly a lot of the movies that are nominated. And, you know, this is just a theory, but maybe if there's less hubbub or, like, dragged-out controversy around the ceremony itself, then people are just like, oh, the Oscars? Should I watch that? I don't know anything about—you know, maybe you're just grabbing people in a moment of enthusiasm instead of fatigue. I
1: saw someone on Twitter make a suggestion, which I thought was very clever. Now, I personally believe that when you have a year like this, in which the movies are good and the race is interesting, but there isn't that anxiety that we're describing, you need a host because a host creates a narrative all his own or all her own. Someone suggested, after seeing Will Ferrell present an award, uh, Will Ferrell might be the best awards presenter in the history of awards because it feels like everything is he's doing is occurring to him in real time, which is the opposite of most people who are just reading off of a teleprompter. But what if Will Ferrell was just the co-presenter of every award and we just shuttled out a new person? You know, here's Meryl Streep and Will Ferrell. <laughs> you know, here's, here's Jack Nicholson and Will Ferrell. Here's Isla Fisher and Will Ferrell. Let's keep bringing in all of these randos. You know, Chris Evans and Will Ferrell. He, he would have chemistry with all of them. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't be the quote-unquote host, but he would just have to riff in... 180-second bites.
0: Because what you're looking for is continuity.
1: A little bit of continuity, okay. a little bit of clarity, a little bit of like, what will this be like? A little bit of anticipation is what sure. I'm looking for.
0: And and a narrative for sure and a name to say, like, Will Farrell is the co-host of he's the He's the co-pilot. Sure. I love Will Farrell, and he's probably one of, like, two comedians that I actually laugh at. So <laughs> I I would be open to that. But I think that idea is... A more specific version of a large idea, which is the, the presenters are always the fun part. That's actually always the thing at the end of the night where we're like, what were the highlights of the Oscars besides the awards? And it's someone or a pair of people who had three minutes and they, they made it work. And what I like about the no host option is that it dispenses with the, the monologue and all of like the creaky machinery and actually does give you the option of just let the presenter shine. How do
1: you think the show should open this year? Didn't, we had a musical number last year, if I recall.
0: What was it a musical wasn't number a,
1: of? Wasn't it Queen with Adam Lambert and a performance of We Are the Champions?
0: Oh, God. I had blocked that Remember out. Remember that? No, I didn't
1: until this moment. And I think two years ago, I may be mistaken, but I think two years ago we had a Justin Timberlake performance opening it up, a song from Minions. Remember that? <laughs>
0: And vaguely, in case yes. you're
1: wondering why the Oscars are seemingly <laughs> always in peril. That's how they opened the show the last two years. Not ideal. I
0: have totally blocked these out of my memory. It's like they don't happen. Um, I, I think that they should not start with a song this year. Shocking to hear you say that. Yeah, believe it or not. Well, I I think that, and similar to, in practice, if maybe not in execution, to what I believe the Emmys did a few years ago where they had a bunch of people come out to fill for the host um and they did do a musical number and it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek about diversity in a way that I didn't totally love. But get a bunch of famous people on stage to start. Because that's that that is that's the thing that I want to borrow. Okay. So and maybe it's maybe not nominees, but presenters or just people you like to see. I'm sure you could get the we always come back to the rock, but like you can get him on for two minutes. I don't know, put the endgame cast on. What do I care? You know, right before
1: we started, um, Recording this podcast, we were having a quick chat about John Mulaney. Mm-hmm. Great comedian. He's got a great special on Netflix right now. Um, shouldn't he just be the host? Shouldn't they just make him the new Billy Crystal? He did a great job with Nick Kroll and in the Independent Spirit Awards a couple of times. He has a kind of, he's becoming universally accepted, mm-hmm. I think, as a Seinfeld-esque comedian for our time. I think young people and old people can agree on him. He, but he also isn't necessarily famous for one thing. He's famous for being a comedian. And I think a lot of the best Oscar hosts are like that.
0: And he does have kind of an old school vintage vibe, but it is updated. It, he's like sort of meta-traditional, if that's a thing that you can do. I think be. that's right. I think that's Which a good way to describe it. Is the vibe that I think works best for the Oscars because at some point it is about history and tradition and you can't. Throw all of that out because then there's no significance to the Oscars left. But you do also need someone who can kind of wink at it, or at least that's that's my preferred mode of. This is a little bit silly, but also we're really interested in it. I guess that's kind of the theme of this podcast.
1: That's true, and I think you know, in that Mulaney was interviewed in the New Yorker this week, and in the interview he made reference to a woman named Nora, who is Nora Lum, who is also known as Aquafina, who is clearly a friend of his. When he mentioned her, I couldn't help but imagine the two of them hosting an Oscar ceremony, and how much sense that makes. Now, obviously, Aquafina may or may not be a nominee this year, so that could be problematic for her, but I don't really see it as being a big problem. I just think my guess is, my prediction is, before we get to the predictions about the awards, is that the ratings are going to go down anywhere between 15 and 20% from where they were last year. And last year was an unusual kind of year with Black Panther being involved, a lot of controversy being involved, The Star is Born, Bohemian Rhapsody. There were a lot of very, very big films. There are some big movies this year, but not nearly as many. And there's just no heat. Now, there's heat for, for me
0: mm-hmm. and heat
1: for you. We gotta, we do this, we're doing this for a living. We love it. We're historically interested. Yeah. But I don't know. Your regular old Jane and Joe moviegoer, I'm not sure.
0: I do think that the ratings are going to go down, but I say that every year just because it's practical of how people are watching things. I, it would be cool if the Oscars started transitioning into what I think they should be long term, which is the ceremony for people who actually are excited about movies. And who do watch movies?
1: This might be the biggest test we've ever had of that. It, it's very possible that that is the show we get this year. We're going to get some musical performances. I'm sure we'll get an In Memoriam tribute. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll get one interpretive dance sequence or comic set piece. But for the most part, with no host and a lot of awards to give out and a desire to stay within that three to three and a half hour runtime, I think it's going to be movie, 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 movie. Which we'll see how that does.
0: I'm, I'm, I'm curious.
1: Let's talk a bit about where the narratives are going. You know, I mentioned that um, there's not as many big movies this year. There's been a, there's a story on Vulture this week about the Avengers Endgame campaign. You, did you check that out? I, I did. I don't, I don't think Endgame has caught any uh, traction here.
0: Yeah, I, I, I don't think that that will happen beyond that piece on Vulture.
1: Do you think Endgame being nominated would have helped the ratings?
0: I suppose so, because I just think of Grace, your sister, <sighs> That's who right. would watch.
1: Yes, how do we get 15-year-olds to care?
0: But if you told Grace that... Chris Evans was, and, um, oh God, why can't I think of Spider-Man's name? It just vanished. Tom Holland, um, very adorable. If he was going to be on stage, do you think she would watch?
1: Perhaps, but they haven't been promoting that, so it's hard to say. Um, I mean, Chris Evans is in a movie that might be nominated for Best Picture. It just happens to be called Knives Out. It's all about how you position these things. Speaking of positioning, all of the craft bodies have nominated their their, their awards, they're their, their slightly smaller awards than the Oscars. So we've got the Producers Guild of America, the Writers Guild of America, the Directors Guild of America, and essentially the British Oscars, the BAFTAs. All of those nominations came out this week. So the timing is good for all of this tea leaf reading. Let's start with the PGAs, which I tend to think is the strongest... Prognosticator for what Best Picture is going to look like. These are the ten nominees that the PGA's chose: nineteen seventeen Ford versus Ferrari, The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Knives Out, Little Women, Marriage Story, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Parasite. Notable omissions. Yes. The two popes not here. Yeah. Could be a death blow for the two popes in this category. Very possible. No bombshell. No Richard Jewell. No Just Mercy. No Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. No cut gems. Which is a shame. Doesn't mean it's over for all those movies. They all could make it back. Any other takeaways that you had just looking at the PGAs?
0: Ford versus Ferrari, still hanging on. Very notable. And, you know, we had talked a bit about how Jojo Rabbit was getting was quieter before this past week. And we'll just highlight Jojo Rabbit here because it's not the last time we're going to be talking about
1: no, it. No, as we go through all of these awards, exactly. we may hear that name over and over again. Speaking of, let's go to the WGAs. Now, the WGAs, of course, just like the Oscars, splits it into original screenplay and adapted screenplay. There are some caveats here that we'll talk about. So for original screenplay, we've got 1917, Sam Mendes and Christy Wilson Cairns, Booksmart, this is a mouthful, Emily Halpern, Sarah Haskins, Susanna Fogel, and Katie Silberman, Knives Out, written by Ryan Johnson, Marriage Story, written by Noah Baumbach, Parasite, written by Bong Joon-ho, and Han Jin-won, story by Bong Joon-ho. So... Important to note there that Quentin Tarantino is not a member of the Writers Guild of America and so he is not nominated for Best Original Screenplay for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood despite the fact that he just won the Golden Globe that you could make the case that he is a prohibitive favorite or a co-favorite with uh, Noah Baumbach and Marriage Story in the Oscar race. Adapted Screenplay, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Micah Fitzerman Blue and Noah Harpster, The Irishman by Stephen Zalian, Jojo Rabbit by Taika Waititi, Joker by Todd Phillips and Scott Silver, Little Women by Greta Gerwig. Generally speaking, the WGA nominations are not to be trusted because there are a lot of complicated and antiquated rules around who can and cannot be recognized. For example, Anthony McCartan, who wrote Darkest Hour and who also wrote The Two Popes, is not nominated here for either adapted or original screenplay because there was some consternation around which it was and what fits where and when it was submitted and all of that complication, I think, clouds this. It's a little harder to get takeaways here. But did you have? Were you? Was there anything that jumped out out of these ten nominees?
0: Well, obviously, it's notable that Booksmart is in original screenplay. I'm not sure that was any, on anybody's shortlist. No. Nope. I do think the fact that a, a few screenplays were not eligible, obviously, including Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but also I believe the Farewell. That's right. Because of the language uh, classifications That's for the right. WGA to original screenplays. It, extremely packed and I, good for Booksmart, a movie that I enjoyed and and Katie Silverman in particular who I think is very talented. Absolutely. I I don't know whether that will transfer.
1: I would doubt it. As you said, this is a loaded category and Mm -hmm. I would feel, I feel pretty strongly that 1917, Knives Out, Marriage Story, and Parasite are all going to be there Mm -hmm. which makes this kind of a fascinating showdown but we'll get to that when we talk about the Oscars. Adaptive screenplay to me is actually significantly Less competitive. It's one of the least competitive categories this year, I would say, arguably. Original screenplay notable because most of the competitors are writer-directors. It's almost all entirely directors who wrote their own films. Adapted screenplay, with the exception of Taika and Greta Gerwig, is the opposite. It is mostly people coming into adaptations or Todd Phillips co-writing with someone along those lines. Speaking of Todd Phillips, let's go to the DGA nominations. Five filmmakers here Mm -hmm. for Best Director for a Feature Film. Bong Joon-ho, Sam Mendes, Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino, and surprise, Taika Waititi.
0: JoJo back.
1: JoJo's not dead. In fact, JoJo Rabbit is one of the only movies in this entire race, one of the most celebrated movie years in the last 20 years, to capture PGA, DGA, WGA, Tic-Tac-Toe. Incredible. Do you think Tyke is going to be nominated for Best Director? You don't have to spoil your whole prediction, but do you think he will well, be there? But
0: that, it is actually spoiling the whole prediction because I think we're all agreed in this category that there are four locks.
1: You think Bong Joon Ho, Sam Mendes, Martin Scorsese, and Quentin Tarantino are locks?
0: I, I mean, I, you know, the world is a mysterious and confusing <laughs> place and, and many things can happen, but I, I think that I feel confident and I think there's consensus on those four.
1: I do too. Best Director historically not historically, the last five years has been pretty wonky. There's always one like, hey, Ben Zeitlin for Beasts of the Southern Wild, but not Ben Affleck for Argo, for example, mm-hmm. a notorious example. We'll have to see. Now, of course, there are no women here. This is not, not the most diverse collection of people, but Todd Phillips actually is not here, which there are many prognosticators who think Todd Phillips will be here in Tyka's place. Mm-hmm. That, of course, would mean no Greta Gerwig. It would mean a great number of other people who were not nominated. There is, however a first feature category that the DGA identifies. Now, Mark Harris made a suggestion on on Vanity Fair of creating a first feature category at the Oscars. I have long believed that this should be a category. It's a no-brainer to me. It is the Rookie of the Year Award for the Oscars, something that everybody loves to talk about and vote on in sports. I don't know why we wouldn't integrate it here. The DGA did a great job, I thought, of identifying a bunch of first-timers. So their nominees are Matty Jop. For Atlantics, Alma Harel for Honey Boy, Melina Matsoukas for Queen and Slim, Tyler Nilsson and Michael Schwartz for The Peanut Butter Falcon, and Joe Talbot, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Interesting collection of people, obviously, um, just as many women as men. Yes. People of color in yes. this collection of people. A lot of feel-good filmmaking stories. The story of Honey Boy getting made, the story of The Last Black Man in San Francisco getting made, the story of The Peanut Butter Falcon, maybe more than any of these getting made, is, is inspiring. And it's a lot more fun, I think, to root for people like this than, say, and I mean this with no disrespect, Sam Mendes. Sam Mendes got a Best Director Oscar, he's living a lavish life, made a great film. But it's more interesting to me to have a discussion about what Alma Harrell is going to do next and, and what she accomplished with Honey Boy and what makes the directing so great in that film. So, what do you think about the first feature Oscar?
0: Yeah, I agree with this. I think we we've talked about this in terms of directing and also breakthrough performances. It obviously in terms of the show and the conversation adds a lot of energy. It's, you know, more things to talk about, but you know, fundamentally I think it does give a spotlight to people who can then hopefully go on and continue to do work. It does have some sort of value in terms of attention in the industry. So why would you not do that?
1: I agree. So we'll use this opportunity to tease something during Oscar week. Me and you and Wesley Morris are going to convene, and we're going to create a new award show, the Alternative Oscars. We're going to create all the categories we've always wanted to create, and we're going to give out all the awards and nominate films that we want to nominate. Are you ready for that?
0: I'm extremely excited. It's going to be bonkers.
1: It'll be a really good time. Let's go to the BAFTAs.
0: Slightly more uh, problematic
1: collection of nominees here. Um, So, headlines. Joker amassed 11 nominations, closely followed by The Irishman, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with 10 each. That's probably not the noisiest takeaway, which was a BAFTA so white campaign emerged once more. The BAFTAs historically have a, a lot of challenges when it comes to recognizing diverse performers and people of color in any of their categories. So, the clearest way to identify that is that Margot Robbie was nominated for two awards in the same category, and no people of color were. And Scarlett Johansson was also nominated for two BAFTAs one for supporting actress and one for. Act, lead actress. Uh, there are also no directors of color here. And just as a little bit of context, I received an email from two different friends citing this fact, and then I read this fact in Kyle Buchanan's breakdown of the BAFTA's issue in the New York Times. Denzel Washington has never been nominated for a BAFTA. He has nine Oscar nominations and two wins. He is the Catherine Hepburn of our generation in terms of the most, one of the most recognized actors never been nominated the baftas would you say the baftas have a race problem yes it's pretty evident that there's something it's, wrong here
0: it is it, it's apparent and there was a huge outcry and the baftas the i believe are now like investigating their own race problem so you know it's it's un, it's unavoidable and undeniable
1: not what you want really at all if you're the baftas i did have one other takeaway well two things one i think um Outstanding British film is always a fun category to look at because there's always a couple of films there that I haven't heard of that haven't come to the States and maybe even haven't played festivals. I noted this on Twitter, but there's a film called Bait that really got my attention, directed by a guy named, I believe, Mark Jenkin, um, which was, which Mark Hermode, the British fil- film critic, who is sort of the most well known British film critic, raved and called the best film, I believe, of the decade, best British film of the decade. I'm looking for Bait. If you can show me the movie Bait, Hear me now on this podcast. <laughs> Find a way to show it to me. I'll go wherever you are in the, in the greater county of Los Angeles. Also for Sama, there was big support for this movie, which I thought was very notable in terms of Oscar race, because there, there, are, there is a lot of crossover here with the BAFTA voters and the Oscar voters in the Academy. I was
0: going to say that that's an important distinction.
1: So even though there is obviously some there are some challenging issues with who is and is not nominated, who is nominated does really matter to the conversations that we're going to have and the predictions that we're going to make. Shall we take a break to hear from our sponsor?
0: Please.
1: Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. For me personally, I I learned how to better understand filmmaking from Martin Scorsese. Amanda, you are getting uh, thrown into the Masterclass world yourself.
0: Yes, for the holidays, I was given a gift a subscription to Anna Wintour's Masterclass titled How to Be a Boss. I, I really can't wait.
1: So much to learn from Anna as well. With over 60 different instructors across tons of categories, there is literally something for everyone. The Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, or Apple TV, and each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, which you can explore at your own pace. The all-access pass membership charged annually gives you unlimited access to over 60 classes and 200 hours of lessons taught by the world's best. As I mentioned, I have checked out Martin Scorsese. I've also checked out Phil Ivey, the great poker player's masterclass. You're about to be a student of Anna Wintour, quite literally. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a listener, you get 15% off the annual all-access pass. So just go to masterclass.com slash bigpicture. That's masterclass.com slash bigpicture for 15% off masterclass. Okay, man, it's prediction time. Okay. Still still feeling that churn in your stomach?
0: Yes, because I don't like being wrong. And I also... <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's it. That's it. That is the source is. of tension. But of
0: course it is. But I can say that, okay. honestly. That's not a surprise to anyone who's listening to this. Okay. Nor do you like being I wrong. I hate to
1: be wrong, but I am frequently wrong.
0: I'm also frequently frequently wrong.
1: I, I want to put the official tally tally on our Golden Globes predictions. I believe we were both five of 14.
0: Oh, I thought we were four of, I believe it was so, five. Good for us.
1: That's... Thank you very much to, um, I don't even know what, what got us over the line. I guess Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for best musical or comedy.
0: The other thing that causes anxiety for me, we'll, we'll just turn this into my therapy session Great. quickly, is that... Is that not
1: what it usually is?
0: Yeah, right. It's a good point. <laughs> but as you have noted, I like to be prepared. I like to dot all the I's, cross all the T's, feel like I'm totally, you know, in command of, of what's going on. And... That's hard every year, but I found it particularly difficult this year because of the accelerated timeline, as you mentioned, all of the the guild nominations came out that but also voting was already closed and things are sped up and you're just kind of, you know, comparing and contrasting and making your own homeland board. But the comparisons, even to past years, aren't really the same. So I feel at sea alone with like my thoughts and my attempts to understand Academy voters, which is a, a, a challenge and not something. I don't know. So I'm nervous. I'm nervous, but I, but I'm prepared. I did it.
1: As always, we are in this together.
0: Okay. Thank you. This is you and Except I on a journey. Except for when I asked for help with animated pics and you were like, no.
1: Well, do your homework. That's my okay. advice there. Watch <laughs> the films. Make some decisions. Read the tea leaves. we're
0: in this together until you don't help me at all.
1: We're in this together is just something I I say but don't mean. Okay, I know. (laughs) Uh, Let's make a couple of notes before we get into the predictions. We're not going to be picking some of the categories. There's two reasons for that. The categories we won't be picking are live action short, animation short, or excuse me, animated short, documentary short, sound editing, sound mixing, visual effects, makeup and hairstyling, production design, and costume design. Now, there's a few reasons for that. It's not because those categories aren't important. I think they're very important. In fact, when they were cut from the telecast last year, a few of those, I was very angry. I think that's not cool. These are significantly important aspects of filmmaking or categories, styles of filmmaking, genres, genre-type shapes. It's mostly because we don't know as much about this stuff and we can't make a seven-hour podcast. So I don't want to pretend to know what the sound mixing nominees are going to be. I don't think that that makes a lot of sense. And I don't think it's necessarily as fun to describe because I don't want to just come off like, some well-informed jerk when I'm not. I do that well enough already just talking about Best Picture. Right. Um,
0: We will make actual predictions on the winner of those categories.
1: Absolutely. Once we get the nominees, we will make some predictions. And we'll understand a little better. Maybe we'll even have some of the nominees on this show to talk about being nominated. We've done that in the past too. I'm not above that. It's more just 24 categories is quite a bit. Frankly, I think there should be 30. We'll leave that for another episode. So, we begin. I'm going to begin with Best Cinematography. Okay. I'm gonna read my my guesses first, and then you can read yours. Now, I will say we've each chosen a wild card mm-hmm. in so addition we, to our five. Yes, so we'll have five nominees that we're predicting plus a wild card. Plus, I'm just gonna caveat this out the ass, like it's
0: uh, no. I have I have many wild cards.
1: So many, so many caveats as we talked. And frankly, this is a this is a a podcast of cowardice. It's not a podcast of bravery. Because i'm I, I don't even know what I don't there's too many good things. There's too many things there's too much hope,
0: well, it, oh, so that's interesting. We should talk about that because I want to be clear that my predictions are not who I think should win right. or be nominated, nor mine at all. Um, and in fact, I really had to fight against that instinct because we do this all the time. And at some point, i let I let that hope in. I let my personal connection or enthusiasm in, and then I am devastated. So
1: I, every year I do it.
0: Yeah. So I did my best to resist that until like 15 minutes before we recorded this podcast where I just scrambled with my phone picks. I don't know. I can't. You give me too much time, you know?
1: Once more under the breach. Best cinematography. Roger Deakins, 1917. Fade and Papa Michael for Ford versus Ferrari. Rodrigo Prieto, the Irishman. Robert Richardson, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Lawrence Scher, Joker. Okay. My wild card is Jaron Blaschke for The Lighthouse.
0: Okay. We are four of five, and I replaced Fade on Papa Michael with Yaron Blashki in my nominations, but my wild card is Fade on Papa Michael for, for, for Safari.
1: So I also included a don't rule out mm-hmm. for this category. Uh, Fejmi Daut and Samir Juma for Honeyland. I think it's possible that because there is a lot of support for Honeyland, this is the Macedonian documentary about beekeepers, which is and, a, life. is and and life truly, and that is the most Oscar yes, line is. of all time. The <laughs> is. North Macedonian documentary about beekeepers and life. Um, there is a lot of support for that movie. I I don't think it's going to crack this. I think that six that we've just described is a very very tight six. Blashkey, I think that would be so cool if he was nominated. I personally don't see it. I don't know if the support's going to be strong enough. I think it's unusual for a movie like Joker to come along and Lauren Scher, who did I thought great work on that movie, but is not historically recognized by the Academy, also being included with four pretty much heavyweights. Mm-hmm. Deacons and Richardson in particular are two of the most celebrated cinematographers of the last 50 years. I mean, they have you know upwards of 30 nominations combined. They've all got several wins. There's an expectation here that Deacons is just going to walk away with this one because of his work on 1917. And if you care about Roger Deacons, I would encourage you to check out The Big Picture next week. Amanda, Chris Ryan, and I will be dedicating an episode to his great works along with 1917. So that one seems pretty straightforward to me. We're okay to disagree on one.
0: Yeah. I mean, we just flipped our wild cards. Basically.
1: We flipped our wild cards. Hence, we're cheating a lot. Okay. Best editing. You ready? Why don't you read your, yours first?
0: Okay. I, I, this is one that I changed the last minute. I don't even know what I'm doing. Okay. Michael McCusker and Andrew Buckland, Ford vs. Safari. Thelma Schoonmacher, The Irishman. Lee Smith, 1917. Jennifer Lame, Marriage Story. And Fred Raskin, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood.
1: Five for five. One match. Okay.
0: Matched. All right. What's
1: your, what are your wild cards or card?
0: Uh, Jin Mo Yang for Parasite.
1: Yes. That is mine as well. Now, there's two others. Yes. That I, that I think are, are notable here. Jeff Groth for the Joker. Mm-hmm. Now, joke. we don't yet know how the Academy actually feels about Joker. We know that they're going to nominate Walking Phoenix. We know that Walking Phoenix is more than likely to win. Yes. Aside from that, if you, if you catch a best editing nomination for Joker here, you better watch out. You, it, this could mean oh, a lot of below-the-line support and mm-hmm. a lot of below-the-line support will mean maybe even a victory and certainly a Todd Phillips nomination. So watch this category closely because it will say a lot. If we don't see Michael, McCus- Michael McCusker and Andrew Buckland here for Best Editing, yeah, you can bet exactly. Ford versus Ferrari will not be in Best Picture. So there is a lot of if-then happening in this category. The one other why-not-more buzz to me is Ronald Bronstein and Benny Safdie for Uncut Gems.
0: Yeah. i think f- I thought about doing this, but I just, I I think it's really, that the season is too short.
1: I agree. I think it's also a want versus, it's a desire versus expectation sort of game that we're playing. Now, I've heard from a couple of people that the support for that movie is bigger than we think, even though it has not been recognized by the PGAs, the DGAs, SAG, WGA. It has not been recognized by any of them. Adam Sandler has only been recognized by critics groups. That being said, sometimes there are movies that are just Oscar movies that just the Oscars care about a lot and critics care about. So I wouldn't totally rule it out. And if you see Uncut Gems in Best Editing, don't be stunned. It's in play. Winner of Best Editing has won Best Picture just once in the past few years in 2013 for Argo. Um, the only time in the past five years that a film that was not nominated for an American Cinema Editors Eddie Award was nominated for Best Film Editing at the Oscars was 2016 when Spotlight slid in. A couple of notable facts okay. for you. So we're pretty we're pretty close so far.
0: Yeah. I think we're going to be... We're going to be close. Close. I, putting is that my consensus? List
1: together,
0: I don't know about that. I, I felt like there were three or four in every category that I was like, this is going to happen. And then it really is you know the one or two that you're just plucking from, from, from nom- other nominations, but also, you know, vibes and hope.
1: This next category is the only one that I feel I will get completely right. Okay. Best original score. My nominees, Alexander Desplat, Little Women, Hilder Gundedoder from Joker, Randy Newman, Marriage Story, Thomas Newman, 1917, and John Williams, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. My wild card is Michael Giacchino from Jojo Rabbit.
0: Okay, we flipped. We're four for five, and I put Michael Giacchino in. Because of all of the Jojo Rabbit.
1: And who did you take out?
0: John Williams, but he's my wild card. And I felt bad doing that. And I think basically I took it out because I was so moved by my John Williams experience at Rise of Skywalker. And he is our greatest living film composer, IMO. And I was like, I can't have the things that I want.
1: It's a great take. Guess how many nom- nominations John Williams has. Guess. One? One? In his career, I don't know. More. Okay, keep it's, guessing. Uh, well,
0: I don't know when you said guess, I thought it was going to be good like game. you know disgracefully low no, instead I, of. So,
1: I should I go on the other? It's value spectrum? neutral. Guess.
0: Am I guessing just Oscar nomination? Yes,
1: Oscar nomination.
0: Okay, if one was not the answer, then like eighteen more. Really good for him. Keep guessing. Uh, thirty-three more. What? Uh, forty-five more. Um. 57.
1: 51.
0: Okay. 51
1: Oscar nominations for John Williams. Great. And I think he's getting 52.
0: He deserves it. We'll
1: leave it at that. Best original song. Why don't you read your
0: nominees? (sighs) But you're making me mute my least favorite category. Into the Unknown from Frozen 2. Stand Up from Harriet. Spirit from The Lion King and Beyonce. I'm Gonna Love Me Again from Rocketman. And Glasgow from Wild Rose.
1: So we match on four of five. What was your wild card?
0: A glass of soju from Parasite.
1: Okay. So I put, I can't let you throw yourself away from Toy Story 4 in here. Okay. Now, among prognosticators, this is not tracking high. But Randy Newman always hits in this category. That is true. And I feel like he's going to hit again. And I've got Glasgow from Wild Rose as my wild card. Now, it would pain me, as listeners of this podcast know, for Jesse Buckley not to be able to perform this song at the Oscars. That, to me, is probably the thing. That I would be most looking forward to, other than seeing the winners of Best Director and Best Picture, because those are the categories I care about most. We'll see who's right.
0: I just think that Mary Steenburgen has like really been campaigning.
1: She's been hustling, and then Ted Danson see, also did did been you hustling. See Ted
0: Danson's adorable for your consideration. Tweet yes, they
1: are running lovely. arm in arm.
0: That's very sweet. I, that's the right amount of spouse campaigning, in my opinion. It's just like a very endearing tweet.
1: <laughs> I hope she gets it. I hope. I hope Wild Rose is there. That would be a good story. You know, Randy Newman, they may overlook him in part because he's definitely going to be nominated for Best Score. Yeah. So we'll see there. I took a chance. I have started a new trend of highlighting everything in red that I don't feel good about. And oh. I, don't, I don't feel good about I Can't Let You Throw Yourself Away. Okay. Next category, Best Documentary Feature. Very tricky. Very historically, very tricky.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: My Five are American Factory, Apollo 11, The Cave, Four Sama, and One Child Nation.
0: Okay. Interesting.
1: Now, my wild card is Honeyland.
0: Yeah, so we flipped. My wild card is One tell Nation, and I put Honeyland in.
1: I have a, there's a reason for this. Now, I, like I said, I think Honeyland is, is really, really admired. And Neon has done a terrific job with this campaign, just like they've done a terrific job with their Parasite campaign and their Apollo 11 campaign. It's been uh, honestly a tremendous Oscar season for Neon, which is a very small company and is only a few years old. But it's related to the next category. Now, the other wild card that I have here is Maiden. Did you see Maiden? I didn't. It's about the team of women who uh, sailed in America's Cup. Is America's Cup? I may be getting that wrong.
0: It, it, that sounds familiar.
1: Okay. Interesting documentary. A little bit pro forma, but a great story and an inspiring film. I think Apollo 11 and American Factory, and I think those are really the only two locks. The Cave and Forsama, I think, are both essentially stories about Syria. And it's possible that there may be some canceling each other out there. Now that's a kind of a grotesque way to describe right. such a serious subject matter of, in both of those films. Frankly, the subject matter in every single one of these films is quite serious and quite important. You know, the the power of capitalism and globalization in American Factory, the loss of American ingenuity ingenuity in Apollo 11, um War Torn Syria in two different films, uh
0: the one-child policy in in China. But
1: maybe the most severe of all, like all these things are very intense. Sometimes you get a, you know, a Morgan Spurlock-style movie in Best Documentary Feature? Not not this yeah. year. Everything is very, very serious. Best International Feature Film. Why don't you read your nominees?
0: Les Miserables from France, Atlantics from Senegal, Pain and Glory from Spain, Parasite from South Korea, and Honeyland from North Macedonia.
1: That's my five as well.
0: This is maybe the category I feel most confident about. Watch out is... for Beanpole. Okay. Well, I know, which is the, I was about to say is the way that I get something wrong.
1: Beanpole and The Painted Bird. Seem to be the two outliers here.
0: Painted Bird is my wild card.
1: Now, it's possible that I've got it wrong and that Honeyland's going in doc and not going in International Feature. We're going to find out.
0: Okay.
1: You and I are not experts
0: in the the documentary
1: and foreign language film categories. We are just doing our best here. If the Painted Bird showed up and, I don't know, Atlantics wasn't in there, I wouldn't be stunned. I think a lot of people would be surprised given the provenance of... Atlantic's on Netflix and, you know, the the, the emergence of Maddie Jop as a filmmaker, but we'll have to see there. I think regardless of what happens, Parasite is winning. Yes. Like, no, no. If you want to put money down now, you probably wouldn't get a very good return. But money down now is is Parasite on the win. Best animated feature, the category that Amanda uh, claims total ignorance on.
0: Yes. I, I have seen one of these movies. It's, uh, we might as well be honest.
1: Is it Frozen 2? It is. Frozen 2 is the first of my (laughs) suggested nominees. How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, I Lost My Body, Missing Link, Toy Story 4.
0: Those are also my nominations. That's your five. Five for five.
1: So there's three outliers here. Abominable, which I don't see getting any attention. It's possible that Claws, the Netflix animated film, flips with I Lost My Body, also a Netflix film. We'll have to keep an eye out on that. And Weathering With You, which is an anime film from G-Kids. Which has been nominated before. They made your song and a number of other films. This movie hasn't been widely seen, but there is a strong contingency of fans for films in this subgenre. If Weathering with You comes along and slides in, I wouldn't be stunned. You're looking at me like I'm speaking Macedonian right
0: now. <laughs> I just, I don't have a wild card. Okay.
1: You don't have a wild card. Best original screenplay. Here you go.
0: <laughs> oh, I don't feel good about this. I don't feel good about it. This is the most important category to me personally. It's where all of the cool people hang out, and I—it's very competitive, and I feel stressed out.
1: I love best original screenplay.
0: I also love best original screenplay, but I just it, there are so many there are so many people who should be nominated. Okay, here's what I got: Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino; Parasite, Bong Joon-ho and Han Jin-won; Marriage Story, Noah Baumbach; Knives Out, Ryan Johnson; The Farewell, Lulu Wong.
1: I knew you're gonna do that.
0: I did it at the last minute and because, and I don't, I, I love this movie. Again, this is not um, who I think should be nominated. I think Lulu Wang should be nominated. I think this is a fantastic movie and a fantastic screenplay. But I, my first draft of nominations, I didn't have anything from The Farewell in. And that felt possibly true to life, but also stupid.
1: Guess what? I've got three nominations for, excuse me, I've got two nominations for The Farewell. Okay. But not in this category. Okay. Um, so the, the, the person I feel le- least good about in this category is Ryan Johnson, actually. Really? I, ha- I have Sam Mendes and uh, Kirstie Cairns Wilson.
0: That's my wild card.
1: Now, I just mentioned this thought about Joker and Below the Line nominees and all these other things. 1917 will be nominated for almost all of those awards. 1917 will be nominated for sound editing, sound mixing, might be nominated for visual effects. It's going to be nominated for a lot of stuff. That might be the movie that when they announce the nominations yeah, has the, the most nominations. The only thing holding that back is the fact that it probably won't have any acting nominations. But it's going to have a lot of below-the-line nominations. I would get, if it's not in a category like this, Mendes and 1917 are weak. If it is here, it's stronger and we got to prep for that. Just one more caveat to put in mind. I do think it will be nominated here and I do think Lulu Wang and Pedro Almodovar are kind of on the outside looking in. Yeah, We'll find out. Best Adapted Screenplay now, see, this one to me is not hard, but I could no. be wrong. I could be wrong. Why don't it? Is it my turn to read? It's your turn. So, The Irishman, Stephen Zalian, Jojo Rabbit, Tycho Waititi, The Two Popes, Anthony McCartan, Joker, Todd Phillips, and Scott Silver, and Little Women, Greta Gerwig.
0: Those are my five.
1: So, there's a strong feeling that A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood by Micah Fitzerman Blue and Noah Harpster could come in here. I just don't think that that movie is as well regarded as any of the five that we just mentioned.
0: I agree with that. That's, I mean, that's my reasoning. It's also my wild card.
1: Okay. So, we're, we're even Stephen on that one. Time to go to the
0: acting categories. Okay.
1: This is uh, in the parlance of a different era. It's nut-cutting time. Okay, great. Who do you got?
0: For Best Supporting Actor. Tom Hanks, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Al Pacino, The Irishman. Joe Pesci, The Irishman. Brad Pitt, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And Anthony Hopkins, The Two Popes.
1: That's my five. Yeah. Let me tell you something right now. Yeah. Do not feel good about it. And I, I really, really, really wanted to put Jamie Foxx here.
0: He's my wild card.
1: Mine as well. Feel like he's taking Hopkins' spot.
0: You th- you think that'll happen? I
1: no, I don't. I picked Hopkins. We, we we matched on the picks, but I just that this is arguably the one I feel least good about in the whole thing. Really? Yeah.
0: Okay. You this know is, why? Why? But SAG. Yeah.
1: SAG nominated Jamie Foxx and they did not nominate Anthony Hopkins.
0: Yes, but here's the thing. I because I, I spent a lot of time staring at the SAG nominations, and and we do that because the actors are such a large a voting body within the Academy. So the SAG is supposed to be predictive. But those nominations came out really early. They did. Like really early in a way that just makes me think that there were a lot of things that hadn't been seen.
1: It's possible, but Just Mercy is one of those movies that... That is true. I mean, it's only going wide yeah, today, essentially. That is true. So I'm not sure. I mean, the two popes obviously played the festivals and Just Mercy, I, I think I saw a screening of it in early November. So they started screening it fairly early It's very hard to say. I think Pacino, Pesci, and Pitt are locks. I think Hanks is a near lock. Hopkins, I don't feel good about. Now, there is also obviously the Song Kang Ho parasite factor here. You uh, you may have seen him uh, meeting Brad Pitt at AFI. There's uh, that incredible tweet about... Song Kang-ho looking at his phone after meeting Brad Pitt and typing in who is Brad Pitt into Google. Did you see that? <laughs> no, I didn't see that. Incredible. Thank you to the internet for providing that. <laughs> um, that would be fun. That w- that's the sort of thing that it happens occasionally in the Oscars. Yeah. You know, like last year, Willem Dafoe was nominated for the-, the Van Gogh movie. Right. And no one saw that coming.
0: And it does also happen when there is a lot of juice behind a movie. I'm thinking about uh, Roma last year where it Yalitia Apricio was nominated, but also Marina de Deterrava was nominated in Best Supporting Actress. That's
1: right. Very similar. It's a very good call. And I think if you see Song Kang-ho here, same thing with a lot of these caveats, these a lot of if-thens that we're putting in there, like, watch out. That means actors are behind Parasite. Watch out. Watch out for the Best Picture win for Parasite. Best Supporting Actress. You're up.
0: I thought I just read this.
1: You did. I'm up. Laura Duran, Marriage Story. Jennifer Lopez, Hustlers. Florence Pugh, Little Women. Shu Shen, The Farewell. Margot Robbie bombshell.
0: Okay, we have four out of five.
1: We're doing pretty good here.
0: And I did something that I want to be clear. I don't like what I did. I don't, su- I like, well, I stand by my my pick, but I don't like the world in which this pick comes true. I think it's the wrong choice. You know
1: whose energy you have right now?
0: Who? Uh,
1: Howard Ratner <laughs> in Uncut Gems <laughs> so- after he's had his nose broken and he's crying in his office. <laughs> okay.
0: He's like, I'm not a good person. I'm not good. No, but I—that's <laughs> you. Okay, that's fine. Uh, people loved that film and that performance. I and love, that I love that
1: scene. So that's my favorite scene.
0: Is that is that the, that's before? This is how I win. Is that when he's crying and then she shows him the tattoo? Yes, exactly. Okay, that is that's a wonderful scene. So I'm not endorsing this. I just was so want to be clear. Okay. That wait, um, are
1: you are you going Jennifer Hudson for cats? Is that where you are
0: going <laughs> No. No, I I have Scarjo. Yeah. As number 5 and I put Shougen who I who I love whose performance is fantastic and who I have been campaigning for in this category since I saw the farewell as my wild card.
1: I've got 3 wild cards. Okay. Margot Robbie for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I've noticed a couple of people have been predicting that one, which is interesting as opposed to bombshell because there's not doesn't seem to be a lot of strong support for bombshell. Yeah. Scarlett for Jojo. Again, this is one of those things where if you see a lot of JoJo nominations, you can count on stuff like this. It's
0: just also happened in every single other. Has it? Yes, hmm. I believe it's also she's SAG. It happened at the Golden Globes. It happened at the BAFTAs, which you know the BAFTAs have some other issues.
1: It's a good point. So I... sneaky ScarJo win here. She could steal it from Laura.
0: I know. I don't no. think she'll win, but yes, she's also nominated for supporting of the SAGs.
1: You know. You and I are not the biggest fans of Jojo Rabbit and we don't need to adjudicate that right now but I I honestly did think she was really good in Jojo she was. Rabbit. I thought that that was like the arguably the best part of the movie aside from the kids like the interaction amongst it, the, the the chemistry amongst the kids. I think that the work that she's doing there kind of reminded me of old school Scarlett Johansson a little bit and felt like also a little bit of a preview for what kind of actor she'll be as she approaches her 40s.
0: Yeah, the, this scene when she is playing both the dad and herself like and at the and the dinner dinner they, and, they, and, table. and they start dancing is is really moving and she's excellent in it. Very
1: good. I agree. Um, Annette Bening the report not here
0: I do have I highlighted Scarlett Johansson and my notes are change this question mark and then Annette Bening question mark but no I I didn't have her on my wild card
1: Shao uh, Shushan is is highlighted in red for me as I'm not I don't feel great about this I, I
0: would absolutely love it
1: I, I I got a gut feeling but I don't feel good about it okay best actor you're up
0: okay I oh, I again I, I I have five wild cards, and this I don't is a feel war. I don't feel good about this.
1: An absolute war.
0: <sighs> okay.
1: I've seen at least six different formulations of this race. All right.
0: We'll do the Walking Phoenix Joker, Leonardo DiCaprio once upon a Time in Hollywood, Adam Driver marriage story. Here we go. Taryn Edgerton, Rocket Man, and Christian Bale, Ford versus Ferrari.
1: Okay, we matched on four out of five. okay. I've got Christian Baleford versus Ferrari, Antonio Banderas for Pain and Glory, okay. Leonardo DiCaprio, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Adam Driver, Marriage Story, and Joaquin Phoenix for Joker. Now, I think you're right to include Taron Edgerton. Taron Edgerton has been nominated for a SAG Award, yes. a BAFTA, and he won the Golden Globe. Yes. World. And I have no evidence that he won't be nominated, despite the fact that I'm not a fan of this film. His performance is okay. I don't think it's particularly great. I don't think he's actually a match for Elton John, his, his essence. He's worked hard on the campaign, and I get that. And I get that there's some admiration for this movie. The idea of him getting in over Antonio Banderas, who's never been nominated, Adam Sandler, who I think gives an absolutely iconic performance in Uncut Gems, and even Eddie Murphy, who I love, makes me want to tear my eyes out. That said, it is some Oscar shit to do that.
0: It's some Oscar shit. Again, my choices are, I, I I went with the numbers and the evidence at hand, as opposed to my feelings. I do have both Antonio Banderas and Eddie Murphy and Adam Sandler on My wild cards. And you could see And
1: no De Niro. We haven't even said Robert I, De Niro's well, I name. I don't think
0: it's happening for De Niro. But the thing about Sandler, I just really think Uncle and Gems got so screwed by the short awards season time because he, you know, he's been giving acceptance speeches this past week. Very, very charming and like roasting the safties. And that's the kind of thing where if voting were still open, a lot of people remember how much they like Adam Sandler. And but That'll happen after voting was closed.
1: It did. ah oh, gosh i i it's it would be funny to watch Sandler and Banderas and Eddie Murphy, who all worked very hard to promote their movies that they gave great performances in, lose out to Edgerton, but my oh, God, I mean, I'm choosing Banderas, but I weirdly, I think you're right, and then this I've just let my emotions overwhelm my 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 choosing my selections.
0: Again, Taryn Anderson seems like a, a very lovely person. And he has, oh, yeah. at this point, babysat most of the voting members of Hollywood's children. And <laughs> that, that seems nice. Yeah. He like, seems like a great guy. It's nothing against him. The, but, I'm just I, sag, BAFTA, and winning the Golden Globe. I, it, You're it, right. It's all there. It's a
1: very strong trifecta. Best actress Aquafina, <clears throat> the farewell. Okay. Scarlett Johansson, marriage story. Saoirse Ronan, Little Women; Charlize Theron, Bombshell; Renee Zellweger, Judy.
0: We have four out of five.
1: You got Cynthia Erivo in there.
0: Um, no, I went with Lupita.
1: Oh, swapping with Aquafina.
0: Yes. Um, Interesting. She's nominated for the SAG Awards. Yep. I and I have just been clinging to those, I guess, though. Who knows why? Um, and and I think you know she has she has Academy awareness. And I just kept going with this feeling that, I, like, I don't—we all saw The Farewell and loved The Farewell. And obviously, like, Aquafino won, but that was so late. Golden Globes were so late in the voting window. I just don't know about the numbers. That was my—that was my issue.
1: I honestly don't know. You've got three films that came out at completely different times of the year. You've got Us that came out in February. You've got The Farewell, which came out over the summer. And you've got Harriet, which came out in the right in the smack middle of the fall award season. All three films have done pretty good box office. Us did spectacular box office. All three women of color. The rest mm-hmm. of our nominees here, potential nominees, are all white. I, I've i got Lupita and Cynthia Erivo both as wild cards. It's really hard to tell. It's interesting that it's been a choice of that triangulation. There's no Alfre Woodard in the conversation at this point anymore yeah. for clemency, which mm-hmm. is too bad. Shame. I don't know. I, I don't feel super strongly about Aquafina. I do feel better about her than I do about Shu Shen for The Farewell. I also think that her winning the Globe mattered. I think her being on stage and giving a good speech mattered in this case. I don't think that was true of every person who won at the Globes, but this one feels like a may have. Okay. That's my case. Should we go to Best Director? Yes. We're getting down to the end. we got two more.
0: Uh, Bong Joon-ho, Parasite. Sam Mendes, 1917. Martin Scorsese, The Irishman. Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And Todd Phillips, Joker.
1: I've got Taika Waititi here.
0: is my wild card. My reasoning was that Taika is the um, Bradley Cooper Memorial DGA nomination for an actor-director that doesn't transfer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I could see that. I could um, see that.
0: And I just, I feel like I have Joker in enough of the below-the-line categories.
1: DGAs don't always match with the Oscars. In fact, many times they don't. I am matching the five for five. Okay. That could be foolhardy. This would mean, in my formulation, no Greta Gerwig, no Noah Baumbach, no Todd Phillips. No women.
0: Yeah. I, I don't... Again, this is not the world we want to see.
1: Did you listen to Todd Phillips on Fresh Air? I did not. I thought he was really good. Okay. I thought he did a really good job. I was surprised by how much Terry Gross liked Joker. And she foregrounded virtually every question with, Now, Todd, I really like your film. <laughs> In an effort, I guess, to make him more comfortable. Because she wanted to ask him about a lot of the reactionary aspects of the film. I think you're you're insightful to choose him here because he is, ever since the sort of blow up in the aftermath of the like, we can't be funny anymore, and and he did talk to Terry Gross about this, um, like how wokeness canceled comedy or whatever that thing, which he claimed was wildly out of context. I would encourage people to check it out, to determine for themselves how they feel about it. He, I thought, very deftly carried himself into the next phase of the Oscars. Whether he actually gets recognized is hard to tell. I I. We just don't know how the Academy is going to feel about Joker. And it wouldn't shock me to see him there. This is a bummer for Greta, who I now think is completely underrated in terms of what she did with Little Women. Yes. Um, I'm, and, on the,
0: I'm on the record of all of this. Yeah.
1: Okay. Last category. Here we go. Best picture. Now, there can be as many as 10 nominees, as few as five. Essentially, what you need to get is about 5% of the vote to get a, to get a nomination here. So that's not a lot. So that's why every once in a while, Amor bursts through and gets nominated here. I don't think that there's ever been 10. I may be mistaken there. I think it's only only been a maximum of nine. Now, I've chosen 10 because I'm a coward.
0: Oh, interesting. I have nine.
1: But I also think that there is a lot of enthusiasm for a lot of films this year. And so it's more likely that we'll get 10 than any other year we've had. Because the, the five locks are like hyper locks, but there's a lot of strength around the other stuff. And in fact, it's the kind of year where there could have been 13 nominations and it would have been legitimate to me. You want to go first?
0: I thought I just went.
1: You did, but I'm asking you if you want to go okay. first. Um, I'll take it if you like.
0: Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the offer. Thank you for letting women's voices be heard, but go ahead. It's this, your is, turn.
1: this is an equal opportunity podcast <laughs> and always has been. Best picture, 1917, Ford versus Ferrari. The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Knives Out, Little Women, Marriage Story, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Parasite. Mhm. Now, I read a very convincing take on vanityfair.com that Uncut Gems will be one of the 10.
0: I thought a lot about this. I was I've been thinking so much about Phantom Threat as an Uncut Gems uh, exactly. comparison. Exactly. Here is the thing, and here is why I didn't do you uncut gems. By the way, my list is the nine. I, I don't think Ford versus Ferrari is going to get But it. otherwise, we're.
1: My two weak spots are Ford versus Ferrari and Knives Out. Continue.
0: um I should say that my wild card is actually Knives Out not making it. I see. And it being eight.
1: Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's very intriguing.
0: But uncut gems, which I love and would ha- be really fun to have at the Oscars, and also is obviously doing really well. Yes,
1: I want to see Josh, Benny, and Adam doing crazy shit for the next month.
0: For sure, 100%. But I I kept thinking about Phantom Thread, which was, again, also a Christmas release, and was not at Golden Globes, and was not, I think it was nominated for costume design at BAFTA's, but we it was a foregone conclusion to us, at least, that it wasn't going to happen, and then um, there it was. In Best Picture, along with Daniel Day-Lewis, who I think everyone understood that he was definitely going to be nominated. The thing is, is that Phantom Thread was directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, who is one of the established great filmmakers of our generation, and also stars Daniel Day-Lewis, who is like really Oscar-y in a way that Adam Sandler, who is extremely talented and gives a tremendous performance, he's like not he's not Mr. Oscar necessarily.
1: Are we sure that Uncut Gems isn't the Safties Boogie Nights? And that this is the first in a long line of provocative, exciting, iterative thrills that are also very sort of like credible and art- arty.
0: I think that that's certainly possible, but I don't know whether that means that it gets a Best Picture nomination in this year.
1: Probably not. Probably and, not. And
0: the, and the other thing I was just thinking about in terms of the Phantom Thread in 2017 was like the internet's favorite, you know? And the thing is, is that like Parasite is kind of already taking that and has point. been riding that wave and a lot of that energy and the fun thing about this year is that there are like a lot of internet favorites there are a lot of movies on this list that we really like so it just means that there's I think part of what pushed Phantom Thread was dissatisfaction say with Three Billboards as a a front runner
1: I think there's also a couple of other things to consider there one obviously the older Academy is not intimidated by a period piece about a designer obviously Daniel Day-Lewis as you said has a brings a sort of credibility, a kind of high-class essence that maybe Adam Sandler doesn't deliver to viewers. The Academy, even t- from two years ago, has changed. There's new people in there. It's possible that it's a little bit more hip. Now, Uncut Gems is very New York. It's not very LA. So that's pr- probably also in the mix. The Safties and, and Adam were at the New York Film Critics Circle dinner this week, and that really felt like probably their Oscars in a lot of ways. But just to be clear, we matched on eight. Mm-hmm. And I included Ford versus Ferrari and Knives Out, and you did not include either.
0: No, I included Knives Out.
1: Oh, you did include so, Knives yeah. Out.
0: Yeah, so my pick is nine. So we matched on nine out I of see. ten. I see, nine out of ten. And ten. Then, but we had to pick a wild card. And my wild card is not the addition of a film. My wild card is that Knives Out won't make it.
1: Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't even know we could do that.
0: Well, I'm just, you know, inventing rules and, and living life as it comes.
1: So here's what this would mean, based on what we've just discussed. Set aside the Ford versus Ferrari conversation, which we should have shortly. On the outside looking in, Uncut Gems, The Farewell, Bombshell, The Two Popes. Mm -hmm. I remember people in August at Telluride telling me The Two Popes would win. Yeah. Would win. Yeah. In this formulation, Netflix only gets two nominations. There's no Eddie Murphy here. There's no Jonathan Price here. There may or may not be an Anthony Hopkins here based on what we're talking about. Is this this bad for Netflix if it shakes out this way? Because I don't think Marriage Story or The Irishman are necessarily frontrunners either. They're in contention as sort of like leading contenders.
0: Yeah. Is it bad? I don't know. I think having a tremendous number of nominations for Irishman and Marriage Story is should be considered positive for them. But they definitely they peaked a, a bit early, maybe. They did. In award season. They, that's kind of, that's what happened. That was
1: essentially my takeaway at the Globes when they only had one win for Laura Dern. There was a little bit of like, did they peak here? And I don't know what to do about that. In many ways, I thought that they were very smart to get their campaign started very early, to start building narrative around Noah back very early. Right. For The, the Irishman to be a, a film of concern for years.
0: I think also it just, the expectations got a bit weird because they came out and were like, we're going to have, what, four movies at the Oscars? That, that's how they started the season because at some point we all... Okay. Dolomite is my name. Yeah, Dolomite is my name. We were going to maybe take the king seriously as an Oscar contender for a minute until we didn't. Um, when you go for world domination, then suddenly getting, what, like 20 Oscar nominations, which I think somewhere in that level is what you and I have on the table for them, is considered a disappointment. But that seems kind of, that's just bad expectations management.
1: I agree. So let's, let's talk about Ford versus Ferrari here a little bit. Okay. I've been turning this, an idea over in my mind a little bit. And I, I, for whatever reason, maybe it's because of the year I was born or the time in which I became aware of these things, the way I would look at the box office rankings in Entertainment Weekly as a teenager, $100 million as a threshold for box office still feels significant to me, especially when you're talking about original stories. There have only been a few original stories that have crossed the $100 million threshold this year. Among them, of course, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. There's a big news about how Knives Out is on pace to even outperform Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at the box office internationally, which is just incredible. Ford versus Ferrari. And I think Us is the only other one. I, it, you know, The upside is there, but that's a remake of a French film. Joker, obviously, is based on previously existing property. Little Women is based on previously existing property you may get over 100 at some point. For the most part, in terms of purely original stories, there's only about four or five, all of which are going to be recognized here. Why isn't why didn't the Ford versus Ferrari thing really truly deeply happen?
0: It's, a, it's such a good question. I, you know, some of it is that I think that it is a, it's a, and this is unfair to Ford versus Ferrari, which I think is really well made and was very entertaining. But it was a dad movie before it came out the gate, and thus hasn't been in the prestige conversation the way say, The Irishman or even, like, Little Women has been because of the elements of what their movie is about and how it's made, I that's, that is my best explanation is a bunch of people just being like, you know, my dad's going to be really into that.
1: Yeah, it has a lot in common with a lot of the other nominees. It has the incredible production design and editing grace and and costumes of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It has the historical element that The Irishman has. It has this kind of like lavish sense of uh, like visionary ownership that a movie like Joker has. Like it has a lot in common with all of these things. It has movie stars like Little Women does or Marriage Story or The Irishman. It shares a lot. With a lot of these movies
0: I think it does, but each of those movies that you mentioned is doing something new even even the Irishman, which is with filled with a bunch of guys playing in some ways the same role that they have been playing for 30, 40 years now, it's a definitely a, a new way of telling that story, both in terms of the story itself and its morals but also where it's been presented and how long it is, et cetera. And Ford vs. Ferrari had a really traditionally good feel to it. Does that make any sense to you? It was it was familiar. And I think that that is um, an unfair way of describing what is a really well-made and technically accomplished movie. But you were like, oh, it, it's the, they don't make them like they used to anymore movies.
1: I wonder if Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has kind of blotted it out because it also has that kind of reputation in a good way, which is like this is about a lost time made by a master craftsman reflecting on something in a more hopeful way, turning
0: it on its head in a lot of ways. True, true. Um, Which Ford versus Ferrari, for all of its pleasures, is not really updating the the basic narrative of guys want to do something and some friendship is made along the way
1: I'm gonna put you on the spot yeah what's winning best picture once upon a time so I agree
0: preferential balloting baby
1: yeah so it you know we didn't we didn't predict a bunch of the categories here but according to what I would have predicted if we did everything it's gonna have 11 nominations which is a lot it's not the most ever it's not even close but that's a lot for a movie like this Mm -hmm. which now that may not be true We, we may not see it in production design we may not see it in costume design but I think we will and usually that portends a win. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood did win Best Musical or Comedy, but it has not, among the critics groups, it has not really won Best Picture kind of anywhere. The Academy is different. Tarantino, obviously, on our network and elsewhere, has been, has been hoofing. He's been out there talking about his, his work and his career and movies and why he loves them. Would that be a satisfying conclusion to this race?
0: Yes, don't you think?
1: I think so. Yeah, I mean, I we love really that love movie. This movie. Yeah, I love it. It's, I'm still not convinced a weird parasite thing isn't going to happen.
0: But would you be mad if a weird parasite thing no, happened? No, I'd be delighted. I'd, let's, it's let's, my second favorite movie of the year. Change the word from weird to exciting. I'd like, thing I'd
1: like to go back into my personal archives. Oh boy! Of every single movie year since I've been alive, and see how frequently my favorite movie and my second favorite movie are running one and two at the Oscars for Best Picture. It's probably never happened.
0: I, I can't imagine, I can't think of any time that it's happened. I, as I said, when we put together our, you know, best movies of a decade and all of our lists, they never correspond to to Best Picture Oscars, to winners anyway. Sometimes they're nominated.
1: So now that we've said that out loud, yeah, it's m- more than likely, perhaps even assured, that 1917 will be, win Best Picture and yeah. Todd Phillips will win for Best Director. Yeah. You feeling good? You you were nervous. You were had some anxiety. <laughs> I think we did okay. You
0: know, it's done. It's out in the world. There's an, no regrets, you know? That's sure. where I am until, until I have so many regrets on Monday morning.
1: What, what what kind of results would you need across these categories to feel like you've done a good job?
0: Well, getting anything wrong is a failure. So, uh, I don't we know. You picked
1: 15 categories. Okay.
0: If I did 12...
1: 12 co- fully correct? Yeah. You're doing the globes thing again. You want to get you need to get 12 <laughs> fully correct? That's
0: fucking hard. Oh, fully correct. I guess I didn't think about it in terms of nominations. Okay, so so 15 times five is 75. That's correct. Wow, math. So that would mean if I get 65, right? That's that's I mean, more wh- than s- you just what you just said. <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> I don't know, Sean. Have standards, you know, for yourself and for others. You think
1: you're going to get—you'll feel good if you get 65 correct?
0: You asked me when I would feel good, when I would feel like I got it right. And that is the honest answer. Anything less, and I'm just reaching around in the dark.
1: Listen, if you get 65 correct, we're going to Morongo Casino immediately. (laughs) Okay? Okay. We're live Oscars podcast from— the blackjack table. I'm just, with you're Amanda asking Dobbins. me about
0: my feelings, and I'm answering honestly in front of a microphone. That that is how I evaluate success for this and for all other walks of life. It's not fun being me.
1: Next time you hear from us, we'll be evaluating our success in real time, early on Monday morning after the Oscar nominations are announced. We'll be able to compare and contrast our successes and our failures, and probably whine a little bit about what we didn't get that we wanted. You ready, Amanda? Yes. We'll see you then. Delighted to be joined by Destin Daniel Cretton. Destin, thanks
2: for being here. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Destin, my first question for you is When did you become aware of Brian Stevenson, the person?
2: Um, I was introduced to him through his book, Just Mercy, um, which I read at a coffee shop here in LA um, called The Bourgeois Pig, which is a very dark coffee shop like they keep the lights really low which is good cuz i was bawling my eyes out throughout <laughs> throughout the reading of the book and um you would i mean what really surprised me about it was i was expecting it to be a downer um which it is it introduced me to some some very bleak facts about about the system of justice that we have here in our country but i wasn't expecting to turn the last page and f- be filled with so much hope and energy and inspiration to want to do something to to help or be involved and um i so i I feel incredibly lucky to have been able to participate in helping brian get the story out through through the medium of film
1: did it seem cinematic when you were reading the book were you seeing it as a movie in any way
2: very much so i mean brian brian is a he is a lawyer but he really is a storyteller and even within the courtroom what he is doing uh on a daily basis is telling stories and he's he's telling he's telling the stories of of his clients who and and this is very much a uh technique of cinema you you start with the stereotype you start with the mugshot or the crime or the or the character that you th- that an audience thinks, yeah, I know that person. Um, and that's what Brian starts with in the courtroom, but then he starts peeling off the layers of the onion so that you you get the full context of, of that character. And by the end of it, they become much more difficult to judge in the way that you were at the start. Um, and that's what he does repeatedly throughout his book. Every character starts with... Somebody that you think you know, or that you think, oh, they did that. Then maybe I do believe in capital punishment. But by the end of every chapter, you've 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 really come to know that person in in so many different ways that it, they they become much more difficult to judge.
1: What's more appealing about a story like this for you as a filmmaker is it kind of the ideas and the philosophy and what Stevenson stands for. Or is it being able to spotlight the people and tell those specific stories?
2: Both. Steven, Brian Stevenson stands for the people, um, and and I I do think that his philosophy is really woven into the work that he does, and the work that he does is is just he he works with the most vulnerable people in our society every single day. Um. I of course telling a a story through film character is everything and the the characters in Brian Stevenson's book and uh the way that he paints them they just felt so relatable to me like I I I wasn't expecting to laugh as much as I did while reading Just Mercy but these characters were so vibrant and had such a good sense of humor um I mean hu- humor is often a, a tool that's used a survival tool that's used to get through tragic situations, and these characters uh were were using that extremely well and and by you know by the end of it I just I felt like they were my friends and uh, i hope it I hope there's an element of that in the in the movie for people as well
1: was it a difficult movie to narrativize to create like a a a story structure around
2: yeah i mean anything that's that is a true story is difficult to to walk the line of um you know what to what to shift uh typically you're playing with timeline when you're when you're um creating a a narrative that's based on a true story. Um and with with this, because we're working so closely with Brian, um he was rightly so very particular about getting certain things right. Um, the the characters were non-negotiable the the legal process was non-negotiable they, um, but he is a storyteller so there were certain elements of of just shifting time or condensing time that that we were able to do that were necessary to the narrative process but yeah it was ch- it was challenging but usually those constraints you know, they're really kind of frustrating at first, but in the end, they force you to come up with something maybe more interesting than you would have just gone to if you could have made it up.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like there are a few movies in theaters right now that have been that are about real life events, but there have been some dramatized aspects that have been controversial for people. Is it when you say it's challenging to almost stick to the letter of the law quite specifically. Like what is that? How does that come into play? Is it you saying, well, wouldn't it be easier for us to tell this story if we removed this person from the story or we added a new character that helped us understood it more? And he would say, no, it's actually, it has to be this way because this is how, this is what's real. And these are the consequences.
2: Yeah. I mean, he wanted to create something that lawyers or, and so did we, we wanted to create something that, Lawyers who work in this field, who know who know the the process of litigation that that's happening, um, would not roll their eyes at it. Um, but also something that's true to the experience of of his clients, who he cares deeply about, and so all all of that morally, we felt obligated to. Um, you know, one 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 example of kind of a of, of a sort of fudge that we did was, um, we, we, and in, instead of in, in real life, when a, when a decision was a specific decision was sent to him, it was, it was actually just sent via facts and the, the, the judge's alt- decision was just sent to them and they read it, which isn't very cinematic. Um, so we talked to Brian and said, is does it ever happen in a courtroom where, the, where you come back for the decision made? And he said, yeah, that does happen. It didn't happen in this situation, but if you did that, it wouldn't be believable. And, it, and then it created more of, a, more of a, a dramatic scene. But the dialogue of what the judge was actually saying was verbatim what was sent to him um, in the documents that, that we had.
1: I love a courtroom drama. I don't know if you if that's a kind of movie you like if that's something that you're drawn to when you're thinking about making stories because your films prior to this don't aren't aren't as conventional as something as a courtroom drama you know they have a a more unique shape but there are some parts of this movie that feel familiar even though you're doing it in a new way about new ideas Do it, it, were you looking at movies like that to kind of capture the essence of the of a great courtroom drama
2: yeah I mean we we actually watch. I think all of them, (laughs) and and broke them down. Um, My Angelanum, who who uh, I co-wrote this with, um, really just went beat by beat and broke down all all the all the great courtroom dramas to see, you know, where the turns were, what the act one turn was, what the midpoint was, when new characters were brought in, and just so we we can understand the structure, um, and also the question as to why they're all. Very long, <laughs> 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 including our movie, we realized like, oh yeah, it's hard to make a courtroom drama that's under two hours and fifteen minutes. Um, um, but also, you know, we we realized that this story um, is it's ultimately different from the starting point because we're we're not talking about um, a trial. The the trial actually happens before, well before the movie starts, and rather than um watching somebody really piece a case together he he's actually looking at a lot of the information up front and and spending the movie trying to convince a a system that is in power that they did something wrong that they that they made a mistake um and that's you know kind of the point of the movie one of the big points of the movie and Brian Stevenson's message is how quickly somebody can be tried over a day. Um, a lot of times, it's over a few hours of a day, and put on death row and sentenced to to death. Um, and how long it takes for the process of just just getting that that system and the people in power to admit that they made a mistake, even when the the evidence is so clearly pointing in that direction
1: i feel like the movie really rises with the performances especially the performances of the men who are on death row in the movie um how did you go about casting the movie because there's there's some big shiny stars and then not everybody but not everybody is a big shiny star so how did you go about
2: finding that cast um Car- carmen cuba who is our casting director um we yeah i mean it, it's hard to map out exactly how you cast something well in this in this instance uh michael b jordan came on first um and he came on both as a producer and and a, a, an actor um it was really uh his his first idea was to go out to to Jamie fox um because they've known each other for a long time and we knew that they were going to be having a lot of scenes together and you know, when two two actors naturally have a backstory and chemistry, that's just that that's half the battle. Is just trying to create that. So the fact that they had that going in was a huge plus for us. Um, Brie, I I sent the book to Bree even before before she was even considering doing the role, and she was just personally so connected to the subject and the book, really moved her, and so. She she really wanted to be a part of it just to help tell the story in any way. Um and then all I mean, our our cast is pretty incredible. Everybody is just so on point. Um, but that the the rest was really working with Carmen to to find the right people. Um O'Shea Jackson actually came in and read for Anthony Ray Hinton and he Showed a side of himself that I'd never seen before, um, and I'm really excited for people to see that side of him. Um, Rob Morgan was was so connected to the story of Herbert Richardson and, and a um, veteran from Vietnam who is on death row, and he just he just really connected with that character in an extraordinary way, and and did his own research into like the stutter and the PTSD and, um, and Tim Blake Nelson is, uh, I mean, he's incredible. He's, he's, uh, one of my favorite actors. And, um, he, he just really dedicated himself to, to getting Ralph Myers, right. Because Ralph Myers could have easily been a cliche and he, Tim Blake Nelson watched all the videos of the real, the real Ralph Myers and really honed in on a very, very uh, precise and interesting character.
1: I, I love the Rob Morgan performance a lot. I think he's incredible in the film. I'd never really seen a movie shot, the sort of solitary confinement, not or Death Row, I guess, shot quite that way. Um, how did you guys talk about kind of like visualizing and telling a prison story, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a lot of prison stories to me. I'm not sure quite how to communicate what I'm saying in that respect, but sure. do, you know, how do you imagine shooting something and, and humanizing it in the yeah. way that you did?
2: I mean, we did feel like it was really important to let people see the space that they are living in. So the first time that you walk onto death row is, is with Walter McMillan as he makes his way back to a cell. And as soon as you pop into a cell, you hear the voices of his um his neighbors so this each 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 um inmate has their own uh their own cell which is r- roughly ten feet by five feet i believe um and what was really actually very uh moving to me was w- I I did an interview with the real Anthony Ray Hinton who is played by O'Shea Jackson and he was on death row for 30 years for a crime he didn't commit and was was recently released and when I talked to him he he said that he would often have um relationships like friendships with people that he he didn't even know what the color of their skin was because they were constantly having conversations shouting between first floor and the second floor or and and he said the there was death row was so loud because everybody was constantly talking to each other but just through walls and through bars um and that was something that we really wanted to capture was the relationship between these three inmates um so we actually, with my D, my DP Brett Pollack, who I've worked on everything with, we we set up three separate cameras, um, each on on each of our actors, and ran them simultaneously so that we could capture all of their interaction. So when you're watching it, it almost feels just like a regular dialogue scene, and you almost forget that they're not looking at each other. When we shot it, they they were able to do the scene, and then. A lot of times they would improvise for sometimes five, ten minutes, and then they'd come back. One person would just naturally start the first dialogue of the scene, and they'd they'd comb through it again, and it would get a little looser. And um, it was it was pretty fascinating to watch.
1: Yeah, it works, it works really well. It creates essentially like a sense of community, which I'd never really seen in that specific way. Um, Michael B Jordan, why did he want to produce the movie and 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 what did he do with Brian to kind of make the performance work?
2: I mean, like all of us, we were all drawn to this because of the book and because of the the um belief just really believing in Brian Stevenson's message and the work that he's doing. Um I think it's, you know, I've, it's extraordinary for me and I think it's extraordinary for an actor to be able to to Tell the story of a living person who, um, who you can go and study and talk to and find out exactly how things w- were at the time that we were, that our story takes place. And it was, uh, I mean, it was kind of funny the first when we've when we when we 1st went to EJ to EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, with with Michael B. Because Michael B. Jordan was, you know, recently coming off of um, Black Panther and Creed Two, and so he was pretty ripped, you know, <laughs> and and so we we were like, um, okay, you gotta just kind of tone down a little bit to to get to like a believable level that you're a lawyer. But then when we went out to Montgomery and and met with Brian Stevenson, they were kind of both just like walking together, and I was filming from the back, and I was like, Brian Stevenson is actually a little more ripped than Michael <laughs> B. Jordan, and it's, um, but it is true. Brian like he he gets up at four every morning and works out, so it, he actually didn't have to lose his. So Michael B. didn't have to lose his 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 uh, killmonger body <laughs> in order to play the role realistically. Um but that time with Brian was pretty instrumental for everybody and and Michael Bugh, you know, he he gave us a tour of the place that he worked, um, gave us the tour of the 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 museum that they've created there that really does kind of brilliantly map out the connection between slavery and And mass incarceration, Um, and then we were able to just Michael B was able to spend time with him just in his office and talking to him about the specifics of how what the strategy is in a courtroom, um, where to stand, the tone of the tone of voice you use when you're speaking when you're a a young black lawyer speaking to a a white judge, Um, and a, a lot of that conversation did inform this performance of restraint that Michael B knew was was going to be very found out that was going to be very important to playing Brian Stevenson because so much of his work is not about his own emotion but about how he is controlling it in in the presence of the people who are in power because he he repeatedly repeatedly told us that him losing himself and getting angry, even though he felt like he wanted to so many times, actually had a very real ripple effect that that would ultimately land on his clients in a negative way. So watching Michael B, you know, struggle with his emotions and keeping them in check actually w- was a I found to be a, a very moving thing to see.
1: The kinds of films that you make, you're obviously you're on the precipice of a big new project, but I feel like a drama's like this, there's a lot of conversation about the difficulty of getting movies like this made in 2019. Was it this a difficult story to kind of get to the screen in any way because it is a it's a studio film with movie stars and it feels kind of old-fashioned in that way even if we haven't seen this exact story before. Was it hard to get this going?
2: Yeah, every movie's hard. Um we we had a lot going for us with this. We have, you know, Gil Netter, a really great producer from the start who, um, we had a great book that everybody, everyone responded to. Um, and we had Michael B. Jordan who everybody responds to. (laughs) Um, and, and then when, when Warner Brothers came on board, um, it was for all the right reasons. Um, our our exec there, Nyjah and Sheila all, I mean all the way all the way up the chain um were so personally passionate about this project and getting it made that they we we just felt really, really supported throughout the entire process.
1: Was it a significantly bigger production than your last two films?
2: Um significantly n- not than my Glass Castle was it wasn't significantly bigger than Glass Castle. It was significantly bigger than Short Term 12, (laughs) yes.
1: (laughs) Um, We recently did a story on Short Term 12 on the site about the cast and the making of the film and, you know, it has, even though the story is quite different, it has a kind of like Days to confuse 2.0, like look at all of these incredible people. Oh, yeah. We discovered quality to it. Mm-hmm. Um, did you guys have a sense of that when you were making it that you were like, oh yeah, and keith will go on to do this and Rami will go on to do this? Or is it just like, these are the great actors we found and hopefully everything works out for them?
2: Um yes, it was that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we were we were all I mean, people talk about like what's it feel like to discover. But I'm like, I'm not, I wasn't like Spielberg. I was like a nobody. So there was no, like we were all figuring it out together. That was just our team. And we're, we're all still friends. And it was like, I'm, I could not be happier for, for, uh, all of them. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible that at the time we were shooting, it was obvious the talent that was there, but you know, you, you you never know what the industry is going to latch on to or not and i was really hoping you know specifically for for keith who you know keith stayed crashed on my couch for like 6 months after short term 12 while he was starting to audition and um and i i was just really i mean he is such an extraordinary talent in every way um, and an extraordinary human i was really Hoping for exactly what is happening to happen. And I could not be more excited for all of them.
1: I feel like tell me if I'm off basis, I'm gonna do a read on something. I feel like you and Kugler and Michael B. Jordan and Brie and this there is a kind of community of people. It seems like you guys are all friends. You find ways to work together. It seems like you've all communicated about your projects. Is there is that am I just imagining a kind of like a cohort of people that are that are all sort of intertwined in some way?
2: i i mean kugler ryan is um yeah we we became friends uh Derek when short term was on the circuit and and fruitvale was and um i mean i i also just really look up up to him as a uh as a filmmaker and as a person who i think finds the right balance between the craziness and r- real life and things that matter. Um but yeah, I mean we we all we all respect each other and it's uh it it was cool having Michael B and Bree on set um and talking about potentially one day figuring out some way to to have all of us do something together at one point, which would be really cool. I think that's sort of what I was pi-
1: picturing. I'm like, is there a world in which all of these people do something together? Did you seek advice? It'd, it'd
2: also be cool to get like Rachel Morrison and Brett Pollock and like yeah, and, like but yeah, maybe there's a maybe there's like a show that we could all collaborate on at some point. Who knows? Okay, loop me in
1: if you do that. Um, did you seek advice from Kugler about how to do the next thing?
2: Always, yeah, yeah. He was one of my one of my first calls. How do you yeah. prepare
1: for something like this? You don't have to tell me about what happens in the movie. I just want to know what what life is like before starting a huge production like Shang Chi.
2: Um, I don't. I don't really know how to prepare for it. <laughs> I, th- <laughs> I think you're 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 thrown in, thank goodness, with a lot of really great people, and it. A lot of it feels like like film school. Like you're just learning new things every single day, um, and and doing everything you can to make, make the best movie possible. Is there anything you took from Just Mercy that you're bringing to this? Everything comes, Everything still comes down to an actor's face in a frame and what the performance is. So um, that's something that I learn more about every single movie that I make. Um, every actor is different, and the way the way to an authentic performance is always different. So... Yeah, I I I I take something from every movie that I've ever made. I take a lot. <laughs> how much
1: of your how much of yourself do you put into the sort of unholy trinity of box office, criticism and awards? Cuz I feel like your film, you know, that those will be significant aspects when the movie is released. Do you think about those three things when you are working on a project?
2: When I'm working on a I mean, I try not to. Um those are the things that make you go crazy. Uh, and so it's probably the the last thing that I should be thinking about. So it's a thing that I try not to think about. What about right now? Um, right now, I'm at this moment not thinking about it at all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I won't force you to do so then. <laughs> um,
1: do you have other things that you're working on, even though you have this massive project? Do you have like, a bucket list of kinds of films that you want to make?
2: I do. Yeah. I mean, I, I I want to continue to make movies that speak to, um, that speak to people that maybe might not have seen themselves or their, their experiences up on screen before. Um, and I'm always looking for ways to do that for me growing up on, on Maui, um, going to the movie theater was a a really big deal to me. It it introduced me to worlds that I, that I did not experience. And, you know, even watching a a Spielberg movies or, or movies that, that anyone on the mainland would, would consider um, normal, like a, a movie that, about high schoolers who get to stay home for snow day is something that was so foreign to me. Um, But what it did was show me that there are other people on this planet who are experiencing emotions and experiences and relationships with their parents that I, that I was experiencing and it helped me to not feel as alone in the world. Um, And so any way that I can do that through storytelling is are those are the things that I gravitate towards
1: What were some of the movies that activated your imagination when you were a kid
2: um the one of one of the one of the first ones that really blew my mind was inner space mm um which I was young enough to think was all real. Um, <laughs> that that somehow they they really could shrink someone down and put them into a human body to fly around in a little spaceship.
1: Are you saying we can't do that?
2: I Well, I think now it is real, isn't it? <laughs> 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 Some version of it.
1: <laughs> uh, Dustin, we end every episode of this show by asking filmmakers what's the last great thing they've seen. Have you been able to see very
2: many movies of late? Um, Ooh, the the last great thing that I have seen was, uh, I mean, this was a plane movie. Great, um, and it's the remake of Aladdin. Yeah, it's
1: probably best seen on a plane.
2: And I loved Will Smith in that movie. Yeah, what did you like? I he was cracking me up. <laughs> 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 that that's actually. The last movie that I saw was on the way out to Sydney, Australia. And I, I I went into that movie wanting to, thinking I was going to hate it. But man, Will Smith, I was like, I was pretty stoked on him.
1: The power of movie stars. <laughs> Congrats on Just Mercy. Thanks for doing this assessment.